Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Sunbury Press publishes print, electronic, and audiobooks under a variety of imprints and categories available worldwide wherever books are sold. And now your host, the founder and CEO of Sunbury Press, Lawrence Knorr. We're at the Christian Baker Farm near historic Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania. My guest today is author John Lacasse, the author of Deals, Danger, Destiny. The life of John Lacasse is an astounding adventure of a man who ricochets through life, making deals and dodging traps from bad guys, as he threads the needle between business fashion, fact, and fantasy. Then he spends 17 years unilaterally questioning the worth of faculty, comes away with his own doctorate degree, becomes a fourth-dimension research junkie in Paris, and manages to manifest the most important theologian in history. John Lacasse is a board advisor at Constructs Energy, host of the Tensions podcast, and author of Fight for the Quantum and After Your Children Die. He enjoys membership in the American Association of University Professors, academic honorariums in Kappa Delta Pi, and Golden Key, with a biographic profile in Marquis Who's Who. He lives in Seattle with his life partner, Christine Burgoyne. Dr. John Lacasse, welcome. Thank you, Lawrence. I'm happy to be here. Yes, well, a lot to unravel there. I mean, what a what a varied uh, life and 17 years of questioning faculty. Uh, as I try to get a PhD myself, I'll start there and wondering why on earth would you question faculty? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I know you know it's not very smart, <laughs> but it makes your story better. I mean, I I was I was thinking of my story earlier and. And uh, one story would be I I went to high school, graduated, went to college, graduated, and went to work. My story is I went to high school, got thrown out, went to college, got thrown out three times, and then finally went to work. So the second story is always better. And um, I think my problem with that generally was that I didn't go back to school until I was 59 years old. Mm -hmm. And uh, at 59, and, and having been working my entire life, um, I had all kinds of built-in biases that the, that I didn't think the faculty was handling very well, yeah. and I wasn't af- and I wasn't afraid of them. You know, um, I remember I was a graduate student at George Washington University, and um, I I was uh, they wanted me to do my my internship at a local school, and so I said fine and. I show up at the school. The school is expecting a 20-year-old intern. I came in at almost 60. And I spend about two days there, and I figure out that I think the faculty is cooking the books. And I start to talk about that. Well, that's not what they had in mind. Right. And uh, the, uh, so I get a call from the dean. She says, I think you should drop the program. Oh, boy. <laughs> <clears throat> wow. So, you know, it's different. It's just different. And it's fine. It was a lot of fun. And I enjoyed it. And I finally got it. And and um, now I'm, you know, now I'm a doctor. Wonderful. Yes, I know as an older student myself, uh, I don't think the programs are established for people like us to come in with the wisdom that we think we have. Maybe we actually do have it. Uh, I, I do agree with you, though, that at least uh, a lot of the research and things that I've seen recently tends to be very biased towards a narrative that's popular or they're trying to push rather than being a real scientific um, review of of what's really happening or what happened in my case historically but uh, that's a whole nother topic i, I want to delve more into your adventures and some of the things that that uh, defined you 
uh, in your life. And, you know, eventually we'll get to the fourth dimension research. But take take me through your youth a little bit, um, some of the things that you did. My, well, the advantage I had was that I had unequivocal love and attention from two great parents. And I'm an only child, so no siblings to compete with. So I was a prince. Um, and I couldn't do anything wrong. And that's both good and bad. But my dad was a, was a forester and a, woods, a woodsman, a mountain guy. And my mother um, was in the humanities. And at the University of Montana, music school, she spent a lot of time there and, and enjoyed drama and music and books. And my dad had me out polishing stocks and hunting big game in, in western Montana. So with that combination, um, I... I had a lot of um, scope, I guess, growing up. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I think that set the tone for um, my confidence. If I had to make, make, say, make an equation about my life, it would be that uh, love equals confidence. And that's a mixed blessing uh, because, like we just talked about earlier, when I got back to school, that confidence showed through and it changed through not in all the best possible ways right but that got me going and it allowed me to react i think through serendipity my, my life really became a series of reactions as i encountered things i would simply react and go forward and it got me into some very interesting situations because uh i would i would for 25 years of my life after i grew up and went to college and so forth and then quit um you know, when I first went to college, I majored in pool and drinking beer. And after that, I, I didn't <laughs> right. study until I was 59. But um, I think what I, what I wanted to do after I got, when I was younger, I kept wanting to get in the yacht business. And, um, and that was the thing that I just wouldn't leave me. So no matter what I did in, in my life, I kept trying to become a yacht broker. And I finally got that done. And that was, that was a big turnaround. That was a real pivot for me because... At that moment, I became um, kind of a baggage handler for people that were captains of industries and heads of state. Mm-hmm. And, and um, very interesting because I saw them out of context. Um, you know, if, you, if you're looking at the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, or, or a show of some kind, and they're talking about captains of industry or heads of state, they're talking about their financial positioning in Wall Street or something like that, their product, whatever it is. For me... I can have a guy walk in the door with a $130 billion cap rate. He wants to know whether or not I've made the coffee. Or if there's something in Rich Passage that he should know about when he leaves tomorrow morning. Mm-hmm. And that was the kind of conversation that I had with these people. So it made it really pretty interesting. And they become, they become completely normal as opposed to bigger than life. Right. One time, um, when, when Tutankhamen was coming to the United States. It was, it was going to break in Seattle. And, and George Shultz then was the Secretary of State. I mean, yeah, sec- I mean, Secretary of Treasury. And um, we knew him. And great guy. And his wife's name was Mary. Um, so, and he's a boater. So he comes to Seattle on the day of the opening, and he wants to be on a boat. We, had, we knew this in advance. We set it up. He comes in with a full-stack security detail and, and comes down the dock, and we get on the boat. So we start drinking veal and water, tall. 
and we just keep drinking it and we're having a great time. Mary's getting mad and George is getting drunk and um, so am I and so is we're on the boat. Well, Mary is deaf and she is she comes out and she's signing him and I can tell as she comes out each time with her hands signing him that the hands are moving faster, which I, my interpretation of that is is um, their conversations getting more abrupt. <laughs> and so finally she comes out. It's about, oh, maybe 45 minutes before the opening. We've had too much to drink. She comes out and she's holding up a suit bag. And she peels back the coat of a tuxedo and there's no pants. <laughs> the guy forgot his pants. And we're 45 minutes away from opening the show. Uh-oh. <laughs> so, and we're not... And we're not doing that well anyway. So the security detail, part of the security detail was a highway patrolman who was standing next to us on the dock. And he had a nice pair of blue pants with a stripe. And so we approached the patrolman and said, listen, um, what would you think if we traded your pants for a pair of George Schultz's pants? <laughs> <laughs> he said, yes, sir. Yes, sir. No problem. And he's, you know. And so we did. We went downstairs, took the policeman down with us, and um, we rifled through the pants till we got a pair that fit everybody that walked out. The, the policeman walked out with a pair of khaki pants from George Schultz. George Schultz puts on his hired patrolman pants, and off we go. Oh, look at that. John, we're going to have to take a break. We're talking to John LaCasse, the author of Deals, Danger, Destiny. We'll be right back. Explore Sunbury Press books and find the work of talented authors in many genres. Ars Metaphysica is our spiritual, new age, and metaphysical imprint. Check out Pettengill's Perfect Fortune Teller and Dream Book by Pelatiah Pettengill. The Space Between by Judith Bowen and works by Kareem El Kusa, including the Phoenician Code. Find out more by clicking on the Books tab at sunburypress.com. I'm back with John Lacasse, the author of Deals, Danger, Destiny, and we're talking about George Schultz's pants. <laughs> so I'm, I'm taking that our drunk secretary, the treasurer, ended up with the proper pants on that night. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Oh, good, did. good. And, well, it was, and it was a great opening. It was a great opening. <laughs> awesome. So we didn't embarrass the Egyptian uh, consulate or anything? No. Right? Okay. No, the Aswan Dam got built after all. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Excellent. Imagine what would have happened if he was pantless. <laughs> what would Reagan have said? Well, George, where's your pants? <laughs> All right. Well, uh, you know, part of the intro I mentioned about you dodging traps and bad guys. I didn't think you mentioned uh, you were thinking of George Schultz as one of the bad guys. But tell tell us a story about uh, uh, maybe some of the shady characters you've come across. Well, probably um, a couple of them. One was Meyer Lansky, who was the uh, who was the uh, American Crime Syndicate bookkeeper. Uh, and the other one was uh, Johnny Carbone. They were both um, involved in my life. Carbone was actually my customer. Uh, Carbone was a was a guy up here in the Pacific Northwest. He was um, he was indicted for racketeering, conspiracy, arson, and attempted murder. And I represented him to a um, to a guy named Tom Moyer. Moyer was in the luxury theater business. He had sixteen screens, and um, he was looking for a boat. And Carbone, I had sold the boat to to Johnny. Um, that's an interesting, um, piece of, um, I guess how you feel about stuff. I would, I went to Carbone's house and his brother 
walked up to me. I was at the dinner table with his family, and and his brother walked up, and he leaned into me, and he's and he leaned into my across the back of my shoulder. He said, "Johnny, you're one of us." And, I, and I'm I'm sitting there with with an arson with a family of you know with a man who's who's up for racketeering, conspiracy, arson, and attempted murder. Mm-hmm. And I'm one of them. I'm thinking, well, maybe maybe I'm not. You know, maybe I am. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, what was interesting about that is the loyalty that these people have, regardless of their circumstance. Um, Carbone gets indicted, and he's got this boat under construction. It's a pretty big boat. It's you know, I don't know. It's you know, approaching a hundred feet, and um, he's got it in a place where the feds can't find it, and he knows I know where it is, of course, and and um, so. He's in the Atlanta. He's in detention with the federal detention in Atlanta, and he tells the, the the cops that they cannot, that he won't talk to anybody but me. <laughs> and so what he's trying to do is he wants me to carve out the boat from what they're trying to do to gather up his assets because they they capture all of his assets when mm-hmm. he's arrested and indicted. And um, so. I ended up working with him, and on every on every Sunday morning at nine o'clock for a long time, there'd be a phone call coming in from Atlanta, and I would have him Carbone would be on the phone, and we would talk about it in these very circumstances. He would talk in code, and I would try and figure out what he was trying to say, and we finally got the deal done. And behind me were six or seven attorneys. They got in behind me, so I was a could barely you know peel the cellophane off of a popsicle guy who's dealing with a major racketeer against the Fed and winning. And that just was crazy. Wow. You know, but that's how it works. So how, um, how did how did a guy from Montana get to be a yacht dealer? My dad, um, when I was growing up, my dad was a forester, as you know, and we didn't have a lot of money. And so he, but he knew I liked water for whatever reason. And so he bought a, a Second World War surplus life raft out of a out of a fighter jet or fighter uh, plane. It was a one man raft, and uh, and he got a, a a wool a gray wool blanket and a broomstick, and he blew it up for me. He put it on the little lake where we were visiting, and he put me in there. And he said, "Here," he said, "Try this and see what you think." So I've got this gray wool blanket on this broomstick with a paddle in the back. And I'm drifting around this lake, and I thought this is pretty cool, and um, it grew from there. Yeah. Wow. And I've owned, you know, I've owned many boats in my life, and uh, lived on them for years. Um, and living on a boat is um, can be kind of interesting. And, and I built boats. I built boats. I was I was the first Navy yacht builder in this in this country. Actually, hmm. um, we were building boats 150 feet steel, and. Um, putting them in the hands of pretty interesting people. We, um, well, I, <laughs> I had a guy come to me one time. He was, um, wanted to buy, wanted to build a boat and he's got this set of plans and, and it's, um, it's a, he wants to build a 50 foot steel boat. And I, I didn't have any experience in steel. So I said, I'll, I'll work on this. And I went down to Tacoma boat and they were a major military contractor. And I go into the uh, supervisor's office and he's down there and I open up this set of plans. I said, would you like to build this boat? And he said, no, I said, we can't build that. It's too small. I'm not going to build that. And um, so I'm, I look behind him on the wall, 
and there's a frigate, uh-huh. a, a U.S. Navy frigate. And I said, well, then, if I, if I paint that white, that boat, would you build that? He said, yeah, of course, we'll build that. I said, you know, fine. So I leave, I go back, and I'm thinking about this thing, thinking, you know, i got a steel builder here. It's just, it's, it's just a matter of context. So I call my friend in South Dakota, Ryan Rivett, who was at that point, he was the founder and starter of the Super 8 motel chain. He was building a new motel about every 72 hours, and he had plenty of pizzazz and verve. And, and uh, I said, Ryan, I said, I got an idea. I, I think I'm going to uh, hypothecate uh, a steel yacht, a big one. And I said, I need a buyer um, so that I can, I'm not lying to people about what I'm doing. Uh-huh. He said, all right, he said, I'll be the buyer. <laughs> so, <laughs> I get a hold of a guy, a design company. I haven't designed this boat. And um, and it's out of steel, and it's it's essentially, it's a white Navy frigate. Wow. And um, so, I I end up, we, we decided to take it to, to the Miami show, this, this thing, this concept. We rent a 25-foot square booth. We get a bunch of glass. I get Walter Dorman Teague in, in this area to, to come in. They're a big design company. And, um, and I get um, the, another boat company, uh, uh, Delta Marine, to give us models of boats that look sort of like this. And so we, we're on our, we set up, we're going to go. And I'm thinking, well, what are we going to say? So I go to the shipyard, and they say, we don't have much, but here, take this as a video. You can... You can show this. And I don't even look at the video. We just haul for the show. We're putting the show up. The show starts. I put up the video. I spool it up. And we're in the, we're in the steel yacht business. And the video is deck gun trials. Um, <laughs> where 70 millimeter deck guns are firing. There's brass rolling down the rails. And um, there's in these, these heavy seas. And I'm thinking, you know, I, this is not what I thought this was going to be. I said, so when the customers stay there, I said, you know, I said, this is the greatest boat you could possibly have. It's got to be the safest boat there is. It's double steel continuous welding. It's built by the United States Navy, blah, blah, blah. Uh-huh. We sold two of them that day. Wow. We sold 250 foot yachts that very day. The press came down with the hot lights are interviewing us. Sam Pooley about the first one. He was a furniture uh, guy in, in South Carolina, North Carolina. And, you know, we did millions and millions of dollars worth of business right out of the box with a, with a bunch of deck guns firing at VCR. That's hilarious. We're talking to John LaCasse, the author of Deals, Danger, Destiny. We'll be right back. Listen for the Brown Posey Press podcast, available here on the BookSpeak Network. I'm Tori Gates, and my guests include fellow authors on our fiction imprint, but also other independent and self-published writers, poets, movers, and shakers in the literary world. Listen for current and previous shows here. The BookSpeak Network brings the story behind the stories and their creators here. I'm back with John LaCasse, the author of Deals, Danger, Destiny. And uh, John, great story about the yacht business. That's amazing how that can just sort of take off on an idea. Uh, it just goes to show you if you show up and you try to sell something, <laughs> it's amazing that you can find buyers. It it just really is. Uh, congratulations on that and the success that followed. But I do want to get into the 
the fourth dimension research junkie in Paris thing. Um, I guess fourth dimension, I'm thinking you're talking about time, time space, and why Paris? Yeah. Well, I, I just, I have a love affair with Paris. Um, when I was, I, I, I've made a lot of trips to Paris and I like the city and I've always enjoyed it. So I, I, I went back, um, what what precipitated that was as the yacht business developed and as I got more and more successful, I also got more and more crazy. And Christine came to me one day and she said, if you keep this up, you're going to die. It's real simple. Mm-hmm. You know, you're abusing yourself at, at monumental levels and um, you're going to be done. So I quit everything. And... Um, uh, I just decided that I would just change my life, and I did. And, and I had, and I liked Paris. And so I, and so, so to get away from the environment, I just went to Paris. And um, uh, it was, a, I was, um, um, Eckhart Tolle. Um, he did a lot of work by just simply sitting on a park bench in London for three years, I think. And I'm thinking, I'm sitting in the in the hub of culture in Europe right now. And what can I do? You know, what can I do? And so I spend time at Shakespeare and Company, which is a, probably the world's most famous bookstore. And I began to meditate and and um, think in terms of, of, um, of outside dimensions. Um, because <clears throat> my... Um, uh, and ultimately, my PhD uh, was in transcendental style. And transcendental teaching styles, and I, I and I am a, now I'm an examiner for the International Baccalaureate in Cardiff, Wales, for that very reason, because I was talking to educators about how to get, how to transcend student interest outside of transactional education. Mm-hmm. I think that transactional education is a mistake. And so I'm anyway I'm down there, and I'm I'm over in Paris, and I'm and I'm um, I'm sitting on the in the bookstore forever. And I'm sitting on the banks of the river forever, and I'm walking around, and and um, uh, I started to become kind of a mystic in my in my elevation. If I was if I was elevating myself, if it's, if if that's elevation, I'm not sure, but but I was beginning to 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 recognize other things besides what I would consider to be normal in the circumstance. Mm-hmm. And, um, and because of that, I I um. I started to manifest uh, uh, that we're dead. Um, but no, not yes and no, kind of. Um, and I had these interesting conversations with people, and the most interesting one was with Thomas Aquinas. Um, now, I, I'm not going to sit here and try and pitch you on the idea that this is real. It's 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 my version of of if you meditate long enough you can go crazy I guess, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but maybe that's what I did I don't know but but between I would sit I would sit at Charlemagne's statue outside of in, in Paris there and I would just sit with Charlemagne and talk to him about his campaigns mm-hmm. uh, I did a lot of research on Napoleon I spent a lot of time with the with the Musée Militaire. Uh, I was with Charles de Gaulle. I was all those guys, but I was with them in their museums. But I would sit there and look at Napoleon's horse and have a conversation with him. Now, this is a stuffed horse, dead as a doornail. 
but I'm going through this whole thing myself and I'm and I'm doing it and I'm doing it for a long time and um, and so it's um, I know when I was um, I did go to the University of Montana for a while when I was younger and I, I studied under uh, under um, um, Fiedler and Fiedler took me aside as a as a, a sample specimen kind of a guy uh, in his studies and he wired me up and he said he said he said you're unusual John he said you can regulate your body temperature and not very many people can do that he said you can regulate the temperature of your limbs you can make one arm cold one arm hot and he said that's hard to do and he said I've never seen it before well we so yeah you know what do I say I'm, I'm walking around in the fourth dimension. Well, it's, um, you know, they say we use such a small portion of our brain. So what's the rest of it for? And what can we perceive? Right. You know, it's, uh, I don't want to say what you experienced was real or not. <laughs> yeah, it was your experience. It's pretty strange. Yeah. Uh, with St. Thomas Aquinas, though, quite a character to sit and have a conversation with, even if it's imaginary or ultra-dimensional. Was there anything out of that? And I know you can, it's some of this is any book, but um, anything you can tease us with about that? Anything, uh, any well, wisdom I, that was passed along through the ether? <laughs> <laughs> he became Aquinas and I became John. And um, I think the most fun we had was that we had a lot of fun. And of course, he was, <clears throat> he was, um, he was, as it turns out, he was after me. He he came down to look at me because I was, I had some things going on with me that that he was there to check out, um, and that's going to be coming in actually the second book, uh, which is uh, I think we're seventy five chapters now. Will be the second book of the series, but um, uh, Aquinas and I had some conversations. It was fun in Paris because because I'd be at the table with him and we'd be having coffee. And the waiter would watch me having this conversation with with someone who wasn't there. <laughs> John, John, that's not a good look. <laughs> I'm sure there's, Monsieur, are you okay? <laughs> what is in your coffee? <laughs> oh, you did that very well. Thank you. <laughs> so were you selling Aquinas a boat? Is that what this was about? or? <laughs> I was I was selling Aquinas a deal. Yeah, I'd like to sell. Yeah, he comes down. I'd like to sell you an ark. <laughs> no, that, that that scene, and I just envisioned that you sitting in a cafe in Paris, by yourself, talking to an empty seat, and the the waiter just looking at it, like with a towel over his arm, maybe well, <laughs> trying to get the did. attention of somebody else. Like, look at this guy. <laughs> they did. They did finally call the cops. <laughs> and and to the waiter's credit, um, the police came. The manager called the police, uh, the gendarme, whatever they call them. Anyway, they're police, I think, in Paris. And um, and then they came, and they were they were like they were like approaching me, like you know, what is going on here? <laughs> and uh, finally, the waiter, God bless him, he stepped up and he just took, he said, "This fine, this is fine. There's no problem there," and um, blew him off. And uh, Aquinas and I took off and walked back to Sorbonne, and uh, that's where he, he, <laughs> that's he told me he he told me he wanted to buy me a drink, but he said Pope Clement 
had, had stopped all drinking for the clergy of Pope Clements III. And I thought, well, you know, we're really, we're really, are, we're really, out, we're really back there, you know. Wow. So uh, he's, he's going to listen to that in 2022 or whenever it was? Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> I think so. Well, John, we're just about out of time, but I, I just wanted to give you a minute or two to talk about the series. You have a couple books here that are you know, related. So what, what are your plans after Deals, Danger, Destiny? Well, when you come up with the book, the, the working title is called Floppy Feathers. Uh, floppy Feathers because Aquinas does take me up to heaven, and uh, I'm fitted. Uh, and, and it turns out Sun Tzu, the guy who wrote The Art of War, was up there, and he was the feather guy. He was making, he was making wings for, uh, for new thrones coming in in the seraphim. And my, I didn't do well with my new set of wings. Uh, uh-huh. But anyway, yeah, that's a working title. We may just make it Deals Danger Destiny number two. But um, we, I do, I do go to heaven with, with Aquinas, and Lucifer turns out to be his buddy. And it's a, it's a very interesting. Um, I find it interesting at least because I start to commingle the the um, the seraphim and the, all the holy orders, essentially as contemporaries as opposed to as opposed to opposites, and um, I make them into a committee, hmm. and then we we go from there. And it's and it's. Uh, I bring in a trinity of women, three women who I know, who become part of the book. And um, these women and I uh, essentially uh, go to heaven. Uh, and um, <laughs> But they get to come back because they're, they're alive. I'm, I'm the only guy that has to stay there. And um, we have a lot of fun reorganizing heaven. Well, John, so, I look forward to hearing about that. It's been a pleasure having you on, especially hearing about you talking to invisible people in a French restaurant. <laughs> was, I, I can tell you I've never had a guest admit that before, <laughs> but it was worth a great laugh. Thanks, guys. All right. This has been the Sunbury Press Book Show. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Check out our website at www.sunburypress.com for our latest releases. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to receive special offers and discounts.